This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Michael Moore about his new book, We Are All Whalers, The Plight of Whales and Our Responsibility. Relating his experiences caring for endangered whales, a veterinarian and marine scientist shows we can all share in the salvation of these imperiled animals. The image most of us have of whalers include harpoons and intentional trauma. Yet eating commercially caught seafood leads to whales entanglement and slow death in ropes and nets. And the global shipping routes that bring us readily available goods often lead to death by collision. We, all of us, are whalers, marine scientist and veterinarian Michael Moore contends. But we do not have to be. Well, Michael, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. All right. So as we have gone through the unprecedented times of the global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting a little bit on how has it affected you and your work, and also maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from the experience. Right. Well, it's been, I've been very, very fortunate because I was able to uh, upstate from, from my place of work and stay at home and, and work fully from home. So I, I was able to dodge the COVID bullet so far. Um, it's been a challenge in terms of maintaining the sort of psychology of how one interacts with colleagues and how one's brain works in largely isolation. Einstein once said that um, nothing more pitiful than a bright mind in a room alone. And that has come back to haunt me quite regularly. Uh, but I think in comparison to people that are just starting out their career, I mean, I turned 65 this year, and I have a lifetime of relationships, which were, I was able to use and draw on in the past couple of years of, of the pandemic. And my colleagues who are in grad school or, you know, freshly minted postdocs or whatever they may be, their chances and their opportunities to network in person, obviously, have been seriously curtailed. So I, I feel very fortunate that I was at my at this end of the career rather than at the beginning in terms of being able to coast through what has been a tough time for everybody, really. And certainly uh, in terms of those people that are in service work that have to show up to do what has to be done, whether it be stocking shelves in a grocery store or wherever, um, those of us that have had the opportunity to do our work remotely have been extraordinarily blessed. And so it has, I think, um, further accentuated the disparities in our society, which we need to be very much aware of as we try to figure out how we all live together and uh, in a supportive way in, in the times moving forward. 
Uh, did you teach any students during this time? Did you teach classes? Uh, no, I, I haven't taught classes for a while. Uh, I'm, prima I'm a research scientist primarily. I, I do have students uh, over the years. Uh, right now, uh, last year, I had a guest student from the University of Kiel, and she showed up to work in my lab, uh, must have been around March 1st. And by March 10th of last year, we looked at each other and said, you need to go home. And so she went back to Germany uh, just in time, really, before getting stuck here. And we had a delightful time uh, where we met at least once a week virtually. And she um, did a beautiful thesis study and uh, was able to have a paper that's in revision now. And it'll be a significant contribution to the science that she was doing. So in that regard, I felt like I, I was able to work well despite the constrictions that we were facing. But uh, my, my lab is small now. It's just myself and, and the, the occasional guest at this point. So I did not have any major challenges in terms of supporting other employees either. So in, I have a, a, a lot of different um, collaborations going on, but they're all uh, at other institutions. And so they were uh, independent of, of my management as such. So that really wasn't a challenge for me. Yeah, what you said earlier would resonate really, really well with many of our listeners, uh, especially students who are just starting, for example, their degrees, and they didn't even have a, a opportunities uh, to meet their classmates uh, during this year, which is really, really sad for many. So yeah, thank you for making that point. Yeah, and the other part of that is that when considering, you know, how much and how soon to go back to work, and I haven't done much of that yet at all. Um, I, I feel it as a mentor and as a colleague to the community that I'm part of, that the older people owe it to the younger people to show up and be present. And that's another whole piece to the, the equation that we all need to consider in terms of how this works going forward. But potentially we should all agree to be at work on Mondays and Tuesdays or whatever it is so that there can be some degree of in-person interaction. But certainly I have a long commute. And not having to commute has been a delightful thing. Oh, that's a bit of a, a silver lining, I suppose. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I, I grew up in, in the UK, in, in the southern part of England, and my father was a, was a country doctor. My mother was a nurse by training, and together they took care of um, the community that we lived in. It was a country community at that point. And I was very fortunate in the education that they gave me in terms of um, where I went to school in high school. And I, I attended the University of Cambridge uh, as a free veterinary student and, and got a veterinary degree at the University of Cambridge in England as well. And during that time, I pursued some interests I have and had in marine mammals. I was fortunate to work with a, a good friend, Hal Whitehead, in Newfoundland when he was doing his, his PhD studies at the University of Cambridge. And so I spent time with him on a small sailboat uh, studying the behavior and ecology and biology of humpback whales in Newfoundland uh, on the East Coast there. And that uh, opened my eyes to the, the wonder, really, of uh, what it means to have a personal understanding of bits of the life of these creatures, so large whales such as humpback whales, are exquisitely adapted for the physiological needs and challenges that they face in being aquatic mammals, uh, how they dive and hold their breath and can operate for varying amounts of time depending upon the species underwater, how they can live in very cold water, how they have coats of blubber that enable that, and all of the different pieces that come together are... Um, a true wonder to myself and many other people. And so as a veterinarian, I was trained to study animals in health and disease and to examine diseased animals to figure out why they are sick and how they need to be treated and how to prevent their conditions from occurring in the first place. So that combination of the clinical, the pathological, the physiological and and the behavioral side of um, my exposure to marine mammals as an undergraduate um, was somewhat unusual. And so 
it opened doors that maybe I wouldn't have had if I hadn't spent some time on a small boat in Newfoundland studying humpback whales. That that study then led on to migrating to the Caribbean as the animals did in the winter. So we spent some time on another sailboat in Silver Bank, which is a offshore coral bank north of the Dominican Republic. And there we saw the same humpbacks that we've been seeing in Newfoundland, carving and breeding and studying them there. So at the time, I was very much torn between you know going off and doing a PhD, studying uh, whale behavior or whale um, ecology, or completing my veterinary degree because I, I'd spent some time out of the veterinary system to, to work in, in Newfoundland and the Caribbean. And so that, um, that led me on to a, a crossroads, and I decided to go back and finish my veterinary degree. And I'm very glad I did because it gave me, again, a fairly unusual perspective of um, health and disease and diagnostics and clinical evaluation of live animals and, and also the evaluation of, of dead animals in terms of why they died and, and what the causes were and so on. So by the time I'd finished veterinary school, I, 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 was, I, I guess I had the budding interests of being a, um, a marine mammal veterinarian, a wildlife veterinarian. And one of the experiences I had as a kid was I went to the London Zoo with my mother when I was maybe eight or nine, and I, I saw an orangutan in a cage, and it was looking at me, and I looked at him, and I didn't want to be there, and he didn't want to be there either. And so my, um, my willingness to use the training and the interests I had within the context of captive marine mammals was pretty low because that wasn't something that I, I, I felt that I could have a fulfilling life in. And, and you know, I, I've potentially changed some of those attitudes somewhat, but still I, I was um, very much uh, focused on using the knowledge and the curiosity that I had in, in the wild um, life context. So that, that sort of led me on. Um, you know, while I was in vet school, I, I got to study a, a pilot whale stranding in the wash in England, and that led me to some connections to the International Whaling Commission, which is based in Cambridge in England. And they asked me to help them with a study that was funded to look at the efficacy of explosive harpoons in um, the fin whale industry in Iceland. So my first job as a veterinarian was on the deck of a whaling ship, which in hindsight is somewhat bizarre to me in, in, in my own perspective, but uh, I think any, any veterinarian graduating today would not necessarily put that as a likely item on the resume that they would be filling out at some point. So the question that I was asked to study there was the efficacy of explosive harpoons. And I talk about this in, in the book, We Are All Whalers, that, that is coming out in, in October of this year. And obviously, there were some very substantial um, questions about the ethics and morality and acceptability and the conservation biology and the animal welfare aspects of shooting explosive harpoons at large whales with the intent of killing them for their meat and other, other products. But once I got involved in the day-to-day -day routine working on this whale-catching ship, um, all of those questions became um, somewhat abstract when I was uh, on a daily basis for about six weeks faced off against the challenge that I had committed to, which was to gather a data set on the efficacy of these harpoons in their in their use. And so some many of the, the bigger questions had to be parked while I, I did what I could do to do the study and the study related uh, that it was actually a remarkably efficient process, uh, taking seconds to minutes to kill these animals. Um, in so doing, I'm not really supporting or denying the, the value of doing that, but just as a, a number, it was striking to me that they weren't um, dying over a longer period. Uh, obviously, there's substantial trauma involved of an explosive grenade uh, penetrating the chest usually and exploding and sending shrapnel through the chest to damage these animals mortally. And, and so, but that, that was something that I did. I wrote it out with the colleague I was working with 
and then moved on. And, and I, I moved over to the US and worked for a couple of years in a veterinary clinic to get qualified to be a veterinarian in the US. And then I started a, more of an academic career working in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, first at the Marine Biological Laboratory. And then I started to do a PhD in Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, where I, where I still work today. So that, that's a bit of background, and I'm not sure if that's where, where you wanted me to go, but here we are. I wonder how much uh, sort of perseverance it took uh, for you, especially on those boats. It must not have been easy, uh, just even physically and mentally, to be uh, at sea. Well, um, yeah, and the two boats that I mentioned so far were a small sailing boat in Newfoundland and, and a whale catcher in, in Iceland. And, and I, I think culturally... They were both quite shocking to me. Uh, you know, I was a, a somewhat shy, introverted uh, English school kid, and I got to hang out with um, a bunch of American friends who became friends very fast. And, you know, I there were some very different cultural norms that I wasn't necessarily aware of or um, sensitive to. So I, I got myself into all kinds of socio-biological trouble. But actually, the, the, the business of being at sea and being on a boat, that wasn't a problem for me at all because I'd grown up doing that kind of stuff. So that was one of the reasons why I was useful to them because I could fix a boat, sail a boat, and maintain a boat. So you know that was, um, that was the easy part. The, the, so, and again, that's true for the whaling ship too. You know, I, I felt very comfortable being on board the ship, um, but I was very uncomfortable with my uh, position in the hierarchy because I was being hired to um, have an opinion about how well these people did their jobs. And I didn't like that. That was rough. And it was amusing, really, because at the beginning of it all, nobody spoke any English at all on the vessel apart from myself. By the time they began to trust me a bit, a few weeks into the, into the period, gradually one by one of them started to talk in English with me. They all spoke English, I suspect. And so um, that was that was fun, and you know I got to go down at the engine room, which was a um, a steam driven system. The whole thing was steam, which made it very quiet and incredible engineering, both in terms of propulsion, but also in the engineering involved in the, the whale catching business. is It's like a giant fishing rod, really, is the way the whole ship is set up to be able to take the, the stress of, of hooking up with these animals. And so um, it was an extraordinary experience for me, and. What I hadn't realized at the time, inevitably, was that in hindsight, what they were providing to me was, if you like, a positive control, a baseline for the experiences that I was yet to undergo, which were to be looking at how, in other contexts, humans also kill large whales. So um, I mentioned that the seconds to minutes that these animals were dying. Once I finished my PhD, I started working more on the relationship between humans and marine mammals in the context of today's um, economy in the eastern seaboard of the U.S. and Canada. And in that regard, I started to uh, look at dead whales, uh, dolphins, whales, seals, uh, humpback whales, North Atlantic right whales in particular, as to how they died. and one of the things that I figuratively and literally tripped over was rope. And as much as these animals were largely being killed either by being hit by ships or by getting entangled in fishing gear, nets and in particular rope or, or specific lines that were being used to <clears throat> either catch fish in gill nets and the sort of curtain of monofilament mesh that the fish would swim into and the whales would blunder into it as well and get wrapped up in the supporting ropes and the anchors and so on. Or the, uh, the ropes that were used to haul the traps that were catching lobsters or crabs from the bottom up to the surface. And here, the, the sort of contrast in terms of what I'd learned in Iceland, which would turn my world upside down, because up until that point, I had a pretty reasonable understanding that there was a um, you know a case to be made that whaling was not a good thing and i'm not saying it is a good thing but it needed to be looked at once i got the experiences that i was getting latterly in a more nuanced way in as much as 
when we started to look at these whales, the right whales in particular, that had been entangled in rope, we were able to get the individual identification of these animals from the patterns of thickened skin and parasites on their head. Uh, the callosity patterns are what we use in North Atlantic right whales to identify individuals, and they've been photographed in life over the time period that they've been alive, from when they were a calf on through to when they died on the beach. So sometimes you had 20, 30 years of life history that have been cataloged by my colleagues at the New England Aquarium to ha- put these deaths in context, in, in a temporal context. So we, we would uh, quite often have information about photographs taken of these animals without any gear on them. And then a few months later, another photograph would be taken and there was a rope wrapped around its head and it was trailing a net or a rope or whatever it was. And so we were able to look back at the life histories and here the veterinarian in me starts taking a history and doing the exams on the beach of these dead animals and to get a much fuller story in terms of how these animals actually died. And so we were able to estimate the shortest and the longest time that the animal had been entangled from when it, when it was found dead. So if, say, it was 10 months before it died, it was found dead, it was gear free, and then it was seen that it had uh, six months before it died, it was seen with gear on it. Then, somewhere between that 10 and six month interval, we knew that the animal had picked up the gear and we could get an estimate of how long it had been dead for with the gear on it. And so, on average, we were able to show quite early on in the early 2000s that the average time from entanglement, assumed entanglement, to death was six months. So that realization really stopped me short because as a veterinarian, um, I care about individuals and I care about their animal welfare. And it's my job to have been trained to minimize the the pain and suffering these animals go through and to diagnose it and to treat it and to prevent it. And so really, I've spent most of my life chasing one or more of those paradigms to do what I was trained to do and to do it in a way that was both as a veterinarian, uh, caring and and veterinarians advocate for animals in an advocate advocacy way as well, but also as a scientist to do so objectively, quantitatively, and to you know, hypothetic you know, drive hypotheses and test them as to what was and wasn't significant in terms of how these animals were dying. So it, it was always a bit of a left brain right brain thing where the the North Atlantic right whale was being looked at by Michael Moore, the the veterinarian, and Michael Moore, the scientist, and how those two perspectives um, added focus, potentially, and and perspective, or they conflicted. But most of the time, they added focus, I hope and believe. So it became obvious to me that um, these animals, especially the ones that were being entangled, less so much the, the vessel strikes, but they're still very significant, were a major conservation problem in terms of the survival of the species, but also a very significant concern in terms of the, the animal welfare of the individual because of this protracted death time. You know, they were taking, as opposed to minutes or seconds, as as a, a whaling uh, mortality. These these entanglement mortalities were taking up to six, or well, an average of six months to die, which shocked me. And you know, I wasn't alone in, in being shocked that way, but certainly I. Um, I began to focus on that fact and the ramifications and the complexities and the basis for it in much of the work that I did in collaboration with a ton of other folks over the years. So that all led me to um, a need to be able to try and, um, I'm sorry about the dogs there. Do you want to start again? No, no, that's fine. You're a veterinarian. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so so that led me into the whole perspective of, how to communicate those concerns. As a scientist, I was um, you know, programmed to write peer-reviewed publications, and I've done that in spades. We've published a lot of papers about different aspects of all of that. And I went to scientific meetings and actually opened the book. We are all whalers uh, sitting in an auditorium at SeaWorld in San Diego, an outdoor auditorium, uh, looking down on a pool of killer whales, and many of my colleagues who were at the same scientific meetings was an icebreaker. We were all getting together. And I was sitting at the top of the um, auditorium looking down on these these whales and, and the trainers and my colleagues. And 
I was up in the clouds somewhere, literally and figuratively, trying to focus on why exactly I was there, what I was going to say in my talk tomorrow, and how is this all going to be. And I had this naive belief that people would listen to what I said, and then the problem would go away because we'd all do something about it. And of course, it didn't happen that way. I, I gave the talk, and people asked questions, and they rushed off to the next talk, and I was left standing there on the corridor thinking, okay, so what do I do now? And you know. For a long time, many years really, I kept on trying to drill down deeper into the details and the the minutiae as to how these whales get entangled, where where they get entangled, and what to do about it, and so on. But I never really successfully communicated these concerns to, on a broader basis. I wrote some review articles and some opinion pieces, but I always was in my comfort zone, which was the academic media. Essentially, so this book um, was is my attempt to cross over into the the mainstream of of life and commerce and consumerism, because essentially, and to, to attempt to communicate with those people, such as myself as a consumer, um, who either depend upon goods shipped by sea. And there are very few veterinarian, excuse me, vegetarians who can claim that they don't depend upon stuff moved by ships, whether it be fuel or food or things you buy in a big box store from China or the Far East or wherever. <clears throat> so I, I, I tried in the book to uh, relate both the, the questions of um, vessel strike and you know, goods moved by sea and also seafood caught. Uh, with gear that requires rope in the water column, whether it be lobster or or snow crab or fish with caught with gill nets. So they're all risk factors for either ships causing collisions with whales or fishing gear causing entanglements. And one of the pieces that um, I was ignoring significantly, and I think certainly the, um, the managers for these problems, the, the politically driven management process, the conservation of these marine mammals, was we were all so heavily focused on mortality. You know, if we can just stop killing these whales, everything's going to be okay. But reality is that that's only potentially less than half of the problem. And as much as for every whale that gets killed by an entanglement, there's probably another 20 that get entangled in a sublethal way. So they get wrapped up in gear that may cause damage over a few days, weeks, or months, and then they can either get disentangled by by humans from that, or they can um, be... Hang on a second. I'm going to change something here. Cut out the noise. Um, so whether they can be um, entangled for a few days or a few months, but they finally get out of it, they may be disentangled by humans, but or they can wriggle out of it themselves. But during the time that these animals are sublethally entangled, they are undergoing a very significant cost and variable cost, depending upon the severity of the entanglement, the sublethal entanglement. But what it can do is drain them of energy that they otherwise would use for the purpose of being alive, reproductively successful humpback whale or a right whale. So what we've seen is that an animal that gets entangled and is entangled for maybe 10 months or whatever before it gets disentangled, will lose a substantial amount of weight. And it's just like Olympic athletes. If they are very, very skinny, they're not going to be very fertile. And so I think right whales have this innate sense as to their hormonal balance and their body condition balance that they don't appear to get pregnant unless they're adequately fat to do so. So if the entanglements have been causing drag and other factors such as infection and tissue damage and repair and all of that, these animals are not fit to get pregnant. And you know, there's two sides to the recovery equation for a species like the North Atlantic right whale. One is, are you killing too many animals? And two is, are you having enough calves to more than balance that? And Fixing the mortality problem, as I said, is only half the issue. And if their health is such that they're not getting fat enough to, to get pregnant, then you know 
recovery isn't going to happen. And that is something that has um, definitely been a problem. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, for sure. So all of your realizations and all of your in-depth knowledge and expertise, but also the passion for whales uh, really are beautifully brought together in, in the book. We are all whalers. And I especially uh, uh, sort of appreciate that you very effectively pinpoint very specific issues that uh, uh, whales are facing. Like you say, it's not uh, just the mortality, but all of these issues that are even novel for for many of us. But it's also quite relatable, isn't it? Like like you say, it's the ships that are carrying our products. So in some sense, we're all contributing to it. Yeah. And one of the challenges I've always faced is trying to rationalize in my own mind why people are uninformed about these issues. And it's fault of people like myself, but it's also a fault of where these issues are actually happening. So if, for instance, a, a live whale or a dolphin lands up on a beach and there's a bunch of beachgoers there watching what's going on, they are hypercritical about how the, the sort of marine mammal medics respond to it. And if they euthanize the animal because it's suffering, they get very critical. And they, they worry very, very much about the, the health and the wealth, the welfare of, of an individual animal that is in front of their noses that they can see. And it's natural. So I understand why. Whereas um, if an animal is entangled at sea and dies at sea and eventually sinks at sea and never comes back up, then obviously that's a completely cryptic event. But even when we tow them in and we take them apart on the beach, it's already dead. And so while people will ask us what we're doing and what the story is, somehow there's, there's a disconnect between why they're there, why the, the animal is there and the, the reasons behind it. And, you know, if, if there were a um, condition whereby dogs or, or whatever species were entangled in some kind of line, packaging or whatever, and these animals were trailing that, that line around bus stops in a city and people were watching this while they were on their way to work and they were realizing that these animals were slowly dying over a period of months. The cause of that um, trauma would be subject to extreme public criticism instantly. Well, the same thing's happening at sea, but it's not happening. We've somehow completely failed to relate that story. And it's something that I've um, struggled with mightily over the last 25 years or so. And the book is, um, you know, trying to make the point that we are all whalers and that we need to step up and be prepared to meet the cost of what it would take to preclude and prevent these events happening, not to destroy the industries that are um, stakeholders in this problem, the fishing industry and the, and the offshore shipping industry in particular, but to figure out how they can be mutually sustainable along with the lives of these large whales, such as North Atlantic right whales and, and humpback whales in this region and really anywhere in the world where there is um, fixed gear fishing and shipping transport. I mean, we know quite a lot about it in the eastern seaboard because we studied it a lot. But if you start to dig into uh, other places where, where there's been less work done, it's remarkable that once you start to look for entanglement 
problems that are there and Duffel Strait problems in the Harakai Gulf in New Zealand. They're on the west coast of California, and Oregon, and Seattle. Um, as the whale populations recover in Europe, uh, in Ireland and so on, the problems will increase there. There are entanglement problems in Scotland with the minke whales and the humpback whales and the lobster creels in that area. Uh, so it's not just a localized problem in the northwest part of the North Atlantic by any means, for sure. So it's, it's, it's been a challenge, and hence I wrote the book. And I, I'm very curious as to um, what kind of an impact the book will have. Will people read it? Will people understand the message? And, and what will the consequences of that be? So with regards to species diversity, so there are many different species of whales, isn't it? Like uh, you already mentioned uh, quite a few of them. I wonder if are all of them equally susceptible to, to these boat strikes and entanglements? Right. Well, that's a very good question. And the answer is uh, they each have their own little human conflict niche, if you like. So um, depending, and it's largely driven by where they go, and what they do when they get there. So if there is a particular feeding behavior habit or diet that a particular whale species is specialized on, then the conflict will depend upon what the humans are doing in that same food chain. So for instance, uh, when I was in Newfoundland in the um, late 70s, the conflict was between humpback whales and humans in as much as they were both competing along the same axis of the food chain. The humpback whales wanted to eat the capelin fish, which are a bait fish about seven, eight inches long. And they were being fed upon by codfish and by humpbacks. The humans were trapping the codfish in these big um, net um, traps that were anchored, and the humpbacks would sort of blunder into the traps and get caught in the nets and destroy the nets cost the fishermen a lot of money, and they would potentially drown or swim off with the gear, or they'd be in place. And so they would get disentangled by a good colleague up there, John Lean. So that, that's the humpback, and they, they would have a problem with cod traps at that time. Cod trap fishery actually went away, and that problem shifted into other things. Whereas, say, um, a, a fin whale, which is a, um, a faster uh, fish-eating whale, but they, they weren't feeding on, on the capelin there, they, they would have a problem uh, with mobile gear sometimes where you get these two, two vessels dragging nets along side by side and then they, and they would get caught in the, in the nets there. Whereas the, hump, the right whales are getting caught in, in the ropes from the traps. And so um, depending upon where the whale species is specialized and going and what it's feeding on, the, the different um, mortality patterns can occur. Sperm whales, for instance, are primarily found off the continental shelf in the deep abyssal waters of the oceans. And there isn't so much um, fishing gear out there. So the sperm whales tend not to get entangled. They, they have got entangled in submarine cables at the bottom of the ocean. And uh, they, they've also at times swallowed um, debris that may have washed off the continental shelf down into the bottom, or they may have been inshore as well, but they tend to be in deeper water. Um, <clears throat> There used to be a, a drift net fishery on Georgie's Bank uh, east of here. And that was done pretty much on the very edge of the bank where the drop-off down into the, uh, the deep ocean was. And that habitat, those canyons are where you'll find beaked whales, which are a, a, a toothed whale about the size of a killer whale, but very cryptic and different animals. And they, they would get caught in, in drift net gear quite a lot. But those drift nets are no longer there, so they don't have so much of an entanglement problem anymore. But what beach whales do have a problem with is noise. So sonar exercises, uh, submarines like to hide in canyons. And so submarines and beach whales have a, have a coexistence. And so if you've got a Navy ship looking for submarines and flushing them out with sonar, active sonar, then potentially the, the other target that they hit and, and disturb and cause some physiological problems with are beaked whales, and they've been shown to get uh, issues with decompression sickness and coming ashore with lots of bubbles in their blood. So they, they have a sort of an acoustic trauma problem as opposed to a, a fishing gear trauma problem at this point in time. So each, um, each species has its own 
uh, rough spots when it comes to dealing with the activities of humans. If that makes sense. And so, for instance, the vaquita, which is a small porpoise in, in northwest corner of Mexico, there, um, they have a particular interaction with a gillnet set for a particular fish, the totoaba. And that species is almost extinct because of, of that very severe interaction. So it depends on where and what and why as to how the particular marine mammal um, and turtle um, interactions between human activities uh, become to be significant sort of hard spots and where, where the interactions are, are most severe. Is it possible to quantify uh, our more, uh, the bigger uh, environmental impact of of these uh, of these issues, the entanglements of uh, of whales, or has it been done? Maybe for some species. Um, well, the I mean, in terms of mortality and sort of reduction in the uh, biomass and the biopresence of large whales, there's been a fair amount recently looking at the sort of budgets, the energy budgets that these animals represent, and also the nutrients that they are uh, cycling through the ocean. And so there's, there's been all kinds of discussions about the sort of biological and energetic value and what it means to uh, carbon sequestration and so on for these different species. And, and one, of the, um, one of the sort of roots of this is the, the idea that um, whales – very many of them tend to feed deeper and then come back up to the surface and defecate at the surface. And also, they, they also tend to sink when they're dead and then create new islands of productivity for the deep benthos and so on. So one of the questions that the assumptions that is underlying the, the question of bringing the, the, the whale pump, as they call it, you bring it up from the bottom. I don't really get into this in the book at all, but it, it is interesting, is that we don't really know if whales only defecate at the surface. No one's really been able, to, as far as I, I know, to actually look at you know, whales deeper down in terms of their defecation rates. And We've joked about making tags that can as a sort of poopometer, but haven't actually got around to making a poopometer yet. But that's certainly um, be an interesting piece to add to the equation of how people are modeling the whale pump and how that all works. And that's a great research proposal title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and also um, different whales have different densities. And so that one of the things that I've thought about a lot over the years is how to find dead whales so that we can do better at looking at how they, how, why they've died. And right whales, as along with their cousin, the, the ice-loving cousin, the bowhead whales, they're balenid whales, and they are notoriously fat and relatively light. Their density is, is lower than, say, a, a sperm whale or a, or a blue whale or something like that. And so when these animals die, if they're in their normal body condition, a right whale will float and a blue whale will sink, which is why right whales were the target for early whalers for millennia before they figured out how to kill blue whales and, and uh, catch them with a with an explosive harpoon that could then bring them back to the ship so they could be pumped up with air and then they'd float and so on, which opened up the whole modern whaling era. But when you when you have a whale that dies, say, from a vessel strike, um, a blue whale potentially would sink, but a right whale would float. So that's going to change how how you count the whales too. So it's um, – and the other piece to that is that the idea that whales sink as, a, as an island is true for blue whales or – humpbacks or whatever, but it's not true for the right whales and bowhead whales because they tend to fall apart at the surface and then the bones start to fall out and they they, they, they plunge down to the bottom, leaving a coat of blubber at the surface, which is scavenged by sharks and birds. And things. So every, every whale species has its own way of going about life and death. So what efforts so far have been made to mitigate uh, the hardships that whales face? Of course, there's still more work to be done, but are there any success stories? There are, um, and there's some stories with potential, I guess is the way to put it. So the, um, the vessel strike problem became more apparent um, earlier than the entanglement story. So I'll tell you that one first. And essentially, there was a... Um, a study done by colleagues in Canada in the Bay of Fundy, folks from 
Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and other colleagues at the Canadian Whale Institute and the Newland Aquarium, they looked at the vessel strike problem for right whales in the Bay of Fundy. And they had very good data on, at that time, a hotspot for right whales between the Bay of the Grand Manan in the Bay of Fundy and the west end of Nova Scotia. And then they looked at the pattern of shipping through there. And there were some vessel strike problems up there at the time. Right whales were killed by ships. And the vessels were... In, there are these things called shipping lanes or traffic separation zones where um, well, ships go up and down on highways, essentially, that are defined on the nautical charts. And they are largely constrained to that to minimize the collision between the ship, one ship and another, so they, they, they pass in the night safely. So they looked at the distribution of the whales and the, pres- the, the location of the shipping lanes, and they realized that if they were to move the shipping lanes about five miles to the east, they would reduce the collision risk with the whales that were there at that time by about 80%. So that was a very significant discovery and started a paradigm that resulted in similar shipping lane moves in eastern New England and also on the west coast of the U.S. and New Zealand and so on. So um, if you can't move the ships they have to be where they are, then you can also slow them down. So vessels, vessel speed restrictions and areas to be avoided have both been um, quite successful at times in reducing vessel collisions. But the trouble is that neither the ships nor the animals necessarily continue to behave as they had before. And so like all biological conservation challenges, you can never sleep because you're forever having to figure out what the next step is. So that's the that's the collision avoidance story, and it's successful to some degree. But, for instance, the North Atlantic right whales moved from the Bay of Fundy when the foods dried up there and water got too warm, and they started going around the corner of Nova Scotia into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And so back in 2017 and 2019, especially, there, were, there was an epidemic of, of vessel collisions that resulted in the Canadian government having to establish a whole bunch of surveillance and uh, mitigation strategies along the lines of slowing ships down and, and moving them around to give the whales a chance to not get hit. So that was the um, the shipping side of it. And there's actually a parallel story with regards to the entanglement. So to try and minimize entanglement has been a real challenge because uh, very often these entanglements are... Um, cryptic. They are, we don't necessarily get our hands on the gear that comes with the animals that cause the problem in the first place. And if we do, very often the gear is not uh, identified as to location. So trying to do site-specific modifications of fishing gear to um, reduce the problem has been frustratingly unsuccessful in large part. And it comes down to a fundamental principle that we have been reluctant to face up to, which is wherever there is rope in the water column from whatever source, overlapping whales uh, behaving in a way that is risky for entanglement in that rope, they run the risk of getting entangled there. But to actually put your finger on where exactly it occurred and trying to figure out how to re-engineer the rope so it's not going to occur anymore is a fool's game because ultimately where there's rope there's risk, and it doesn't matter whether it's a fishing gear thing or, or a mooring situation or aquaculture versus a trap versus a trawl. It all depends upon the details as to whether or not they're going to be a problem or not. But ultimately, the reality is that because of the way that these situations are so dynamic, wherever there is rope and it's coexisting with whales, then that's going to be a problem which is something that is really hard to swallow, especially for the industries and the managers and the politicians that are trying to make this all work out. Because uh, the consequence of what I just said is that uh, we need to, in some way, have a broad brush in how we're doing these conservation measures to <clears throat> reduce the entanglement problem. So having said that, the current strategies that are involved are to modify the gear so that there's some weakness, so when they do get entangled, they can break out of it. Uh, that has not necessarily been shown to, although the data suggests that it will be helpful, uh, previous attempts at weakening rope um, in particular attachments haven't necessarily 
shown up as being solving the problem because certainly those attempts of the, the, the entanglement problem has been getting worse and worse over the last 15 years or so. So the alternative is to take a step back and look at uh, what do we have to do to make it all work out, make it sustainable for the fishery industries, the different sectors of the fishery, and also for the whales. And that is to remove the rope from the water column, which is quite heretical in many ways because of the challenges that represents, and I fully understand that. But if you, um, it's really a question of where do you start from? Do you start from a given that the industry is not going to be impacted and it's going to continue in the way it's done it forever, or the whales are going to survive? And those two starting points are a very long way apart, but there is somewhere in the middle that I do believe that we can work out a consequence that will be good for both of them, or, or adequately good for both of them. And so that would be that um, there can be places where already there are places where we do not allow any fishing for the period of time when the animals are in high densities, such as in Cape Cod Bay in, um, in the spring, early spring of the year, or in the Gulf of St. Lawrence where there is um, right, right well presence. They, they forbid having um, any snow crab gear at the time. So if there were a way to enable the fishery to have gear in the water without rope in those closed areas, that's a win-win for sure. But once we've done that, then potentially that uh, quote-unquote ropeless or on-demand fishing could be used more broadly to uh, sustain the fishery but also give the animals more protection. So that's something that I've been pushing quite hard with a number of colleagues over the last four or five years to figure out how that could be. And it's not a new idea at all. Uh, the use of acoustic releases to allow bottom-mounted gear from an oceanographic research point of view goes back 50 years at this point or more. And the challenge is that those research agendas generally are less budget-constrained than you know having a significant arsenal of those kinds of um, releases in a routine commercial fishing operation. So, so cost is a very significant piece to it. But as I said earlier, it really depends upon what, where do you start? If you start with the assumption that these animals aren't going to be entangled, how do you enable the fishery? Versus if you start with the assumption that we're not going to um, impact the fishery at all, how are the whale's going to survive around it? So there are two very different places, and it depends upon your values. And that's really what it comes to in terms of how those those two things go. So the way that we are proposing for this on-demand fishery to work is to use available technologies now to retrieve and mark the presence of this fishing gear on the bottom without having any rope coming up to the surface except when it's being retrieved. So you know, normally right now, a fishing trap or a lobster trap has either one or more traps along the bottom in a string and then the end trap or a single trap is attached to a rope that goes up to the surface to a float, which is marked. And so the fishermen or other fishermen or other users of the water know that there's a trap on the bottom and they can use that buoy and that rope to pull the trap up to service it and get the harvest and put new bait on it. So any acoustic system has to both enable retrieval and it also has to allow for identification of where this gear is set so others can avoid it and so on. So it's a um, early stages yet, but we're keen to work with fishermen to do this kind of work, to develop the systems that work for them. And, you know, it all comes down to value. You know, what governmental investment is for people prepared to make through our taxes and through our cost of the products that we want to buy in this luxury seafood that that lobster represents to enable both the fishery and the, the industry and the consumer to get what they want and the whales to get what they need. So that's, that's the challenge that we're facing currently. Yeah. These sound uh, like really actionable solutions that you propose with uh, great potentials. And uh, so these uh, are probably more on the local government uh, sort of wide level collaboration uh, levels. What about on the levels of individuals? So with your book, you really try and inspire people to be, um, first of all, to actually know about the issues, you know, about what's happening. 
but uh, what individuals uh, can uh, can do, do you think? Well, they first of all need to understand the title of the book, We Are All Whales. And if they understand what I'm saying, then they've got a fundamental um, knowledge base that I, that I have successfully shared. And that's what I've tried to do. I've tried to share what I know. And, you know, obviously I've um, created a, well, along with many others, a challenge in terms of how there is a political balance of interest between the communities that are dependent upon these industries to feed their, and their systems and their people and their children and educate the children and you know create a worthwhile society that is based upon these coastal fisheries and offshore fisheries as well. So with that respect and that um, understanding and that knowledge, then the question is how does the consumer then convey his and her um, desire to be supportive of a mutually sustainable system between the fisheries and the shipping industries and these animals. And, you know, every consumer above the age of voting age has a vote. And were the conservation of the North Atlantic right whale to become a politically significant question then the democratic process should have in its capacity an ability to influence what the expectations are and the reality is. And so my hope is that the individuals will be able to um, communicate those concerns to those who are in charge. And those who are in charge are those who are elected officials that have the influence to change what priorities the people working in federal and state governments managing these fisheries and the and the vessel traffic and so on are allowed and asked to do because if you look at the legislation and the regulations that are present in the US sure the problem shouldn't be here because if those regulations were enforced such that you know there's a rule that basically says thou shalt not kill more than 0.8 of a right whale in any one year in US waters well we've exceeded that ever since that rule's been in place so if the uh, consumer were to understand the significance of that and demand it of the elected representatives and make them realize that they're not going to get voted in next time unless they do, then that would solve the problem. Maybe I'm being extremely uh, starry-eyed and um, naive, but uh, what else can one do? Because that is the reality. No, not at all. And I think all of us actually want to be informed and uh, many of us are not, even myself, even uh, coming back to what you said earlier, that it's a little bit, ha- a little bit harder to empathize with marine mammals as compared to dogs or, or cats that we're used to. So I always have to remind myself that there are mammals, that they have to go to the surface to breathe and then they can get struck uh, by the boat. So, yeah, I think that individuals are, would be really, really interested. And your book does a great, a great service to really inspire and inform all of us. So we're just wondering, was there anything that surprised you uh, along your journey uh, to writing We're All Whalers? Well, that's a really interesting question. I, I, I guess the biggest surprise to me was the challenge of finding a publisher. Um, I was fortunate and I was paid to write the book by a foundation, the um, Organo Foundation, and and also by my institution, supported my time too. But So there I was at um, maybe the end of 2019 with a first draft. Okay, fine, let's find a publisher. So inevitably you start um, crafting book proposal type letters to and sort of lay out what you have. And, you know, I, I was maybe a little bit... Um, further down the road than many people are when they actually sort of want to need, need money to write the book in the first place. So I, I had the I had the draft. And I started um, looking at the process and you know, established publishing houses and starting looking at the numbers and recognizing that something like 70,000 books are published every day in the world, mostly self-published and, and so on. And looking at the question of book agents and how that all works and so on. And, and you know, it was really overwhelmingly depressing in terms of trying to figure out how this is actually going to work. And uh, reality 
pretty much ignored all of the efforts that I was making to find a publisher, and I was fortunately contacted by an editor for the um, University of Chicago Press, Joe Kalamia, who was attending a meeting that I was giving a presentation at in Seattle um, in February of 2020. And so we agreed to have lunch and actually met with some other editors at the same time. And uh, Joe liked what I had to share with him, and, and he was extraordinarily kind and helpful in telling me what I was trying to say. And so uh, an editor who understands what you're trying to say and says, yeah, it's only a first draft, but we can do okay with this. And so we went through a number of drafts with uh, impact from very meaningful impact from uh, anonymous reviewers and, and also a huge amount of help from a, a copywriter. So the surprise to me was um, how challenging it was without some kind of serendipity to actually get a, a publisher to, to take the book. And so I was extraordinarily grateful and happy to work with the University of Chicago Press to do what has been done. Yeah, and it worked out really, really well. Yeah, so yeah. have you have you ever wondered what would happen if you were accidentally swallowed by the whale? Would you, would you just sit there with a little campfire? I was swallowed by a whale. Well, I don't know if you're aware, but there was an incident quite recently very close to us here in Provincetown, off the waters of Provincetown, where a very experienced uh, lobster diver who was catching lobsters with a scuba tank and, and a bag was... Um, engulfed by a whale. It wasn't swallowed by a whale, but a humpback whale was cruising by, mindset on um, gulping up a bunch of small fish that were around. And this guy got um, fully engulfed into the mouth of the whale. And so oh, wow. he, he can tell you the story much better than I can. Uh, and he has done so. It's, it's all over the web today. But I, I believe the story very much so because um, his his tender, the guy that was in the boat waiting for him, was a, the son of a colleague of mine, and this guy knows whales very, very well, and his descriptions certainly sort of were right on, and you know, absolutely, the guy knows a whale from something else. They described how the whale came back up to the surface and spat him out, and this guy was able to find his demand valve, his face mask, for, he was still wearing his scuba tank, so he was able to survived for about the 40 seconds that he was inside the whale. The whale came back up to the surface and shook his head, and out of the sky popped. And he, he was, um, his knee was a bit damaged and a bit bruised up, but he no broken bones. That's fascinating. There we go. We've got some scientific data, N of one. <laughs> well, actually, there's N of two. There was another photo-documented event off of South Africa oh. a couple of years ago with a brooder's whale, I think it was, and I forget the details, but there are some photographs in that case. And, and, of two, people, and of three, if you include Jonah. I suppose people are not as tasty. They just spat them out. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, the, the, the thing is that the esophagus, the, the, the sort of the food tube for large whales is actually very small. They don't, they don't, they don't eat large things. So that it's not, not that big at all. So you can't, I, I think Jonah is probably a, a fictitious, oh, oh, it's a, um, Mythical, mythical story. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So what are you currently working on and what would be your next project? Well, uh, we've got support from the SeaWorld Conservation Fund to study um, the development of these on-demand systems. So working with colleagues in the U.S. government and some not-for-profits and also fishermen to develop and improve these systems to make them more viable, functional, safe, and affordable. So that's a major project I've got going currently. Um, I also continue to work uh, with other projects that I've been doing over the years, but the new one I've really got going is this, this one with the, with the on-demand fishing systems. Sounds really interesting. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also the book? Okay. Well, the book is um, published by the University of Chicago Press um, on um, in early October, so it should be available online and in bookstores um, that month. 
And if you just Google We Are All Whalers and Michael Moore, you'll come up with this Michael Moore and a link to the book at both Amazon and Goodreads and, and University of Chicago Press. Um, and my work, uh, if you Google my name, Michael Moore and Woods Hole Oceanographic or W-H-O-I, you'll, you'll find, find my website. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a really interesting discussion. Well, thank you for your interest. And I appreciate the interest of people listening to this and hope they'll enjoy the book. And, and do something about it. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.